Again, we'll be looking at Jude today, continuing in this little short epistle. And in this little short epistle, there's just so much packed in it that um, I find myself really unable to make progress um, quickly. So hopefully you'll be patient with me in that regard. The main thrust of this little epistle of Jude is to contend for the faith. It's, it's that each individual Christian would engage in the ministry of contending for the faith. It, it's exercising discernment. The elders are called to do that for the church. So godly men protecting the church from false teachers. Jude isn't really geared towards them. They are called to do that. They are called to contend for the faith for the church. But each individual believer is called to contend for the faith in your own individual lives and how you live live out your life and, and the pastors that you put yourself under. It, it helps you to know who to trust and who not to trust. Contending for the faith is really a call to exercise discernment. Discernment isn't really needed when things are obviously at drastic, drastic, there's drastic difference between them. Like it doesn't require a lot of discernment to decide whether the atheist is telling you the truth or whether the pastor who's teaching the Bible is telling you the truth. You, as, as those who profess faith in Christ, you get that. That's an easy thing to, to decide between. What's difficult to decide is when things look similar. You know those little, uh, little uh, mental test, observation tests that come through your email or on the newspaper or something. It's like, there's two pictures. They look a lot alike. And they say, can you find, you know, the three things that are different? Right? That's, that's just a mental exercise, but it's a good illustration of what discernment requires. You're looking for things that, that, that aren't right. And yet, from a distance, they look very similar. Well, that's what Jude tells us. Jude tells us that people have crept into the church unaware. Right? They, they look like they're Christians, but they're not. They look like they could be faithful teachers, but it turns out they're not. And unfortunately, Christians today have been, have been trained um, not to discriminate like this. And we use that word discriminate in, in a good sense. You are called to discriminate between truth and error, good and false, good and bad. And, and you need to be able to, to tell the difference between counterfeit Christianity and genuine Christianity. And what Jude says aligns some of what with the author of Hebrews says. And I just, just want to bring this out in Hebrews 5, 4, 11 to 14. I'll just read this for you because Christianity today is, is like is like the, the group that, that the author of Hebrews writes to in Hebrews 5. He says, Concerning him we have much to say, and it is hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you have need again for someone to teach you the elementary principles of the oracles of God. And you have come to need milk and not solid food. For everyone who partakes only of milk is not accustomed to the word of righteousness, for he is an infant. But solid food is for the mature, who because of practice have their senses trained to discern both good and evil. That's what we're talking about. It's, it's taking the meat of God's word. That's 
the solid doctrine. Solid doctrine is needed so that you can be trained into discerning between true and false, good and evil. Well, the sad reality is that the evangelical church today is so doctrinally weak that they can't do this. Solid doctrine is needed. That's the foundation. Without the foundation of the Word of God, then you're just kind of left to be to stray back and forth. Every wind of doctrine. Well, I think this sounds right now. And then a few years later, then this sounds right. And a few years later, then this sounds right. It's kind of like modern medicine. You know, eggs are unhealthy. Eggs are healthy. Eggs are unhealthy. Eggs are healthy. Which is it? Right? So, that that's that's what you're left to do if you don't have sound doctrine. Sound doctrine grounds you in in the Word of God and, and allows you to be steadfast in that. Not unteachable, but steadfast in the Word of God. Mainstream evangelical Christianity today is a false teacher's paradise. Think about that. Christianity today is a false teacher's paradise. Because you and I are being asked to accept a great deal of things as Christian simply because they claim to be Christian or they claim to be biblical. But you must be discerning. In today's climate, almost anything will fly in Christianity. Almost anything will sell in Christianity. And and almost anything will pass for Christian if you just make that claim. And if for some reason you you want to exercise discernment, then the automatic charge is, oh, you're judging me. Well, you are called to exercise that kind of judgment. Right? That's what Judah's about, contending for the faith. I want to give you an illustration of something that passed as Christian a few years ago. Kevin and Alex Malarkey were alone together in a vehicle when they are involved in an accident. And this happened in November 2004. The Malarkeys had moved uh, away from Columbus to rural Huntsville, Ohio, so not too far from here. The family was struggling financially. Uh, They had just had their fourth child, and Kevin and his son went to church that day. Uh, just the two of them, and Alex was six years old. And on the way home, uh, Kevin, a father, answered uh, his phone, and in so doing, he missed a blind spot at an intersection, and a vehicle hit their vehicle. Kevin was ejected from the vehicle, but didn't suffer any serious harm. However, Alex suffered what is called an internal decapitation. He was alive, but barely. And that is, your skull moves away from your spine. They didn't think he was going to be, he was going to survive. They, in fact, called a coroner to the accident scene. Um, he was put into a medically, I think, into a, I think it's a medically induced coma. And he was in that coma for two months. They didn't think he was going to survive. But he defied the odds. He did survive. He came out of the coma. And in in the months and even a few years after coming out of the coma, Kevin began to talk about going to heaven. He began talking about seeing angels coming and going from the earth, even, even that continuing. 
His father, taking dubious notes, began to put these things together. Two and two came together and a publisher got involved. And the publisher thought this would be a great story. And they began to work on the book and get it out. Six years later, so 2010, the book was published and it became a sensation. It was entitled The Boy Who Came Back from Heaven. Um, they, Kevin and Alex were listed as co-authors. Keep in mind how young Kevin was. But in the book, Kevin claimed that he spent time in heaven after the accident, that he continued to be visited by angels and even demons after he emerged from his coma two months later. He even claims to have met Jesus, who told him he would survive. I guess that was during the coma. He saw 150 angels with fantastic feather wings. And he describes the devil as having three heads with red eyes, moldy teeth, and a hair made of fire. Leave that where it is. Here's how the publisher, Tyndale House, described the book at the time. And I'll quote this. Alex awoke from a coma with an incredible story to share of the events at the accident scene and in the hospital while he was unconscious, of the angels that took him through the gates of heaven itself, of the unearthly music that sounded just terrible to a six-year-old, and most amazing of all, of meeting and talking to Jesus. The boy who came back from heaven is the true story of an ordinary boy's most extraordinary journey. As you see heaven and earth through Alex's eyes, you will come away with new insights on miracles, life beyond this world, and the power of a father's love. Unquote. Now for you, those of you who don't know publishers, Tyndale House is supposed to be solid, trustworthy, and biblical. The fact that a major evangelical publisher published this book should have been a scandal even of itself. The publisher had no way to verify that actually Alex had actually gone to heaven. It's one of those claims you, you just cannot verify. And yet they wrote in the book, on the dust cover, true story. Why? Because it sells. That, that's my conclusion. It sells. And there's an appetite for it. It only sold because there's an appetite for it. Because Christianity today is ripe for false teachers. They'll believe almost anything. And you know that book so sold over one million copies. Spent several weeks, if not months, on the New York Times bestseller list. And launched, really it was one of the, it wasn't the first, but it was the first in a wave of very popular books on on after-death experiences or near-death experiences. You could call this heaven tourism, heavenly tourism. Um, another one of those that, that uh, wrote at this time was um, the, written by the Burpos. Uh, and his, uh, again, a father and son, but this time the, the, is a four-year-old son who had a near-death experience. And, and his book was called Heaven is for Real. And it was published shortly after Alex Alex's book. Alex's last name is Malarkey, uh, interesting enough. Um, 
So Heaven is for Real is by the Burpos, and and they claimed to be to have had this heavenly experience. His book sold has sold eight million copies before they did a movie about it. There's a major Hollywood movie about this, his experience. And that doesn't include all the books that were sold after the major movie. And there's there's all these other books like this that just keep selling. Listen to this editor, former editor at Zondervan, who did not publish at least the first one. She said, all Christian publishers were looking for the next heaven book because of the success. Success. Money. And people buy it because they want to be encouraged. I mean, these are some fantastic stories. If they were real, that's pretty, pretty nifty. The sad reality that all these stories are false. 100% of them are false. They are either completely made up or they're given as from, from the demonic realm. I don't have a problem in a certain sense if someone tells me that they've seen an angel and, you know, the angel communicated with them because that's biblical. And I say angel, not a good angel. Demonic angel. But the reason I know the first story is false is because when, if you were ever to see Satan, he would look like Michael the archangel because he's masquerading as an angel of light. He's not going to look like this evil creature. No way. In 2015, so nine years later, Alex broke with this story. He had been trying to get it out, but nobody had been listening because of the success of his book. But with the help of a few bloggers, he got this open letter out on the internet. Listen to his words. Please forgive the brevity. Now, he was uh, completely, um, he's a quadriplegic for the rest of his life. Please forgive the brevity. But because of my limitations, I have to keep this short. I did not die. I did not go to heaven. I said I went to heaven because I thought it would get me attention. When I made the claims that I did, I had never read the Bible. People have profited from lies and continue to. They should read the Bible, which is enough. The Bible is the only source of truth. Anything written by man cannot be infallible. It is only through repentance of your sins and belief in Jesus as the Son of God who died for your sins, even though he committed none of his own, so that you can be forgiven. You may learn of heaven outside of what is outside of what is written in the Bible, not by reading a work of man. I want the whole world to know that the Bible is sufficient. Those who market these materials must be called to repent and hold the Bible as enough. In Christ, Alex Malarkey. Jude alerts you to the fact that there are people who look like Christians who are not. 
Now, I'm not saying everybody that teaches something like this, certainly Alex seems to be a genuine believer. I'm not saying everybody who teaches a false, something false like this is, is a false teacher. What I'm saying is there's an appetite in evangelical Christianity for these things, and you must be discerning. You must contend for the faith. The Holy Spirit wants you to know that there are, are masqueraders out there and you must be on guard. How are you going to know the truth? Will you take it back to the Word of God? Like in, in, the, in the case with these heavenly tourism books, you compare it with what the Word of God says. That's your source. Do you want to have hope in heaven and the afterlife? Read your Bible. There's a lot of hope there, real hope. Not hope that's made up by some boy and his father, but real, genuine hope that's grounded on the promise of God. How do we know who's genuine and who's false as far as a teacher? When they, when they look alike, by looking at their characteristics. And Jude gives us identifying habits or characteristics of, of these apostates, these false teachers, that we can use to unmask them, to identify them, so that we'll know who to listen to and who not to listen to. Let, let's jump in together, uh, back into Jude. Let me read Jude without further ado. And I'm going to read eight verses, verse 8 to 13 um, to give us more of the context. Yet in the same way, these men, that is, those who crept in unnoticed from verse 4, also by dreaming defile the flesh and reject authority and revile angelic majesties. But Michael the archangel, when he disputed with the devil and argued about the body of Moses, did not pronounce against him a railing judgment, but said, The Lord rebuke you. But these men revile the things which they do not understand, and the things which they know by instinct, like unreasoning animals, by these they are destroyed. Woe to them, for they have gone the way of Cain, and for pay they have rushed headlong into the air of Balaam, and perished in the rebellion of Korah. These are the men who are hidden reefs in your love feast, when they feast with you without fear, carrying for themselves clouds without water, carried along by winds, autumn trees without fruit, doubly dead, uprooted, wild waves of the sea, casting up their own shame like foam, wandering stars for whom the black darkness has been reserved forever. These are not just believers who are teaching wrong things. These are false teachers. They are apostates. They are unbelievers. They are unconverted. And in Jude 8 to 10, he gives us four identifying habits of apostates so that you can unmask them so that you can contend for the faith. What are those four? Reliance upon dreams, which we covered two weeks ago. We see that in, in the first part of verse 8. And this that, that dreaming uh, in, impacts all the other things that they do as well. Remember that dreaming isn't isn't uh, just a, uh, like a, a dream. Um, isn't may not be a literal dream. It could be a little dream they made up, but it's certainly not anything God given. It could be demonic. They made it up, or there's just it's a dream in a sense of th this is what they want to do. This is how they're living out their life, and they're this is their dream of of doing something, of being famous, of getting gold, um, rich, whatever it is. They're they're going for it. So a reliance upon dreams, a pursuit of sexual immorality, rejection of authority, and blasphemy of glorious ones. And 
We're just kind of working our way through these to help us understand them. We looked at reliance upon dreams last time. This morning, we're going to tackle the second. You, you can identify apostates by their pursuit of sexual immorality. You see the phrase in verse 8, defile the flesh. Yet in, it, in the same way, these men defile the flesh. What does the word defile mean? The, the word literally means to, to dye another color. Figuratively, in the moral sense, it means to contaminate and, and corrupt, uh, to soil, to stain. You could, you could even use the word pollute, uh, but it's, it ha- carries the idea in, the, in a spiritual sense. It's a spiritual pollution. You know, several weeks ago, uh, when the Norfolk Southern Trail uh, train derailed, um, just to the east of us in East Palestine, Ohio, they had the dangerous chemicals that were there, and they did the burn to try to keep it from exploding. And, and doing that controlled burn, then our, our, our government then basically polluted the whole environment around there, both the air and the water and the soil, contaminated everything. And now they're digging out some of the soil and trying to treat it and take it away. They're trying to do all these things. But who knows whether it'll ever be like a really healthy place that it once was. Right? That that's the idea with this defiling. It's 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 a contamination of such that only God can cleanse. So there is hope there, but barring God's involvement, this is a this is a corruption that runs so deep these men cannot cannot cleanse themselves. Now to defile in this sense brings about a spiritual uncleanness. And and we get a sense of that um, it, by the gospel uh, in the Gospel of John. In John's use of the same term, in John eighteen twenty eight, uh, John uses the term to talk about the the religious leaders who didn't want to be defiled. So I'll just read that to you. Eighteen twenty eight. Then they led Jesus from Caiaphas into the Praetorium. This is the hours before he was crucified. He was tried in the praetorium, and it was early, and they themselves did not enter into the praetorium so that they would not be defiled, but might eat the Passover. So what is what is John telling us? John is telling us that, that these religious leaders, these Jewish leaders, thought that if they went into the praetorium, which is which is the area where you have um Chi, um sorry, where you have um Pilate there. So Pilate is there, he is a Roman which the Jews despised, and even more significantly, he's a Gentile. So the Jewish leaders believe that if they were with a Gentile, particularly the Romans, before Passover, it would defile them such that they couldn't, they didn't have enough time to go through the ritual cleansing process before Passover. So they just avoided being defiled. Um, in, in that ceremonial sense of the word. But that, that gives you an idea. I'm not saying that's correct. What I'm saying is that's what they thought and that's what they lived out. They believed that the Gentiles were a defiling element and you shouldn't, you shouldn't be around them. That's why they criticized Jesus for eating with the Gentiles and the tax collectors, which were often Jews, but were cooperating with the Romans. So they're like traitors. So that's the kind of defiling the, uh, what the word defile would mean. It, it's, it carries that spiritual sense of, of being contaminated. In, in Titus, Paul uses the same word for defile. And he puts it in contrast with being pure. So if you want an opposite to what it, 
what defiling is. Um, it means to be pure. In Titus 1.15, Paul says, To the pure, all things are pure, but to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. Both their mind and their conscience are defiled. It, so it shows us that it carries the idea of being unclean. Right? which is that Old Testament concept. When you were unclean, you, you couldn't come to the temple to worship. You had to stay away until you were clean. So the idea here is that if you're defiled, you're unclean, you cannot approach God because you are defiled. And this is the reason why Jesus' sacrifice, his death for us is so important because we cannot approach God on our own terms just the way we are. We need to be not only forgiven of our sins, but we need to be cleansed of our sins. Not just an external washing, like you can you can do that at home yourself, but you need to be cleansed spiritually, internally, and only God can do that. And that's what Jesus Christ does for everyone who exercises faith and trust in him. And on his cleansing and on his righteousness, then you can approach God in worship. You can approach God's throne in grace. Not only can you, but you're commanded to. You approach his throne through prayer. But if you're defiled, you can't do that. And and Jude tells us that this these men defile the flesh. This is not a one-time occurrence. This is not an accidental defiling. Like, like in the Old Testament, there's times where if you if you walked accidentally on a grave of of somebody, like a then it would defile you. And you might not even know that you did that. So Jude's not talking about that kind. This is a, a defiling that's that is a habit. It it is something that's ongoing. It's an ongoing habitual practice. So this is this is a, a picture of someone who is regularly and habitually defiling and polluting themselves. Um, it's certainly not a one-time um, occurrence with long-term implications. This is an ongoing habit with long-term implications. Now, notice what he says there. What do they defile? They defile the flesh, is how the New American Standard uh, Bible puts it, and, and the LSB and, and many other Bibles. They defile the flesh. Literally, Jew just says, defile flesh. These men defile flesh. Right? The definite article is added there, just kind of smooth the, the translation. Um, other other Bibles, uh, like the um, HCSB and even the NIV, add a pronoun saying their bodies. They they are their flesh. They defile their flesh. But but that's an addition that kind of leads us, uh, or kind of limits the application. It's unnecessary, right? So just say defile the flesh or defile flesh is is sufficient to get us to where Jude wants us uh, to, to under. Or, it gets us to what Jude wants us to understand. So what does the, the word flesh mean? How is that word being used? Jude is using flesh in a, the general literal sense of the term to refer to the physical body, which is typically how the word is used in the New Testament. Not all the time. You let the context dictate that. But the Apostle Paul uses the word um, in the same way many times. He does use the word occasionally to speak about the sinful nature. But more often than not, he uses the term flesh to speak about the physical body. For example, 2 Corinthians 12.7, uh, Paul wrote this, Because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, for this reason, to keep me from exalting myself, there was given me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me, to keep me from exalting myself. So he said there's a, a thorn in the flesh. There was something physically going on. 
And there's a debate about what that could be, whether it was an illness uh, or whether it was a um, satanically inspired like false teacher that that was there to harass him. We won't get into all that. The, the thing to see is that there was a thorn in the flesh. That's physically, there was something there in his life causing him problems. Uh, in Galatians 2.20, passage you're probably familiar with and many, many have memorized. He says, I have been crucified with Christ and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. So he says, I, the life I now live in the flesh, he goes, that's the life I'm living. That's my bodily life, my earthly life here and now. So these, these verses are using the word flesh in the same way that Jude does, to refer to the physical body. Right? So how does one defile the human body? And keep in mind, the defiling of the human body carries a spiritual ramification. So this isn't just, again, this isn't the kind of uh, defiling that you, like you can just wash your hands and be done with it. This is a, a moral uh, defiling. This is uncleanness in the moral sense caused by the human body. So how, how, how does someone do something like that? Well, the, the context in Jude and other places tells us that this is done by sexual immorality. That by engaging in sexual immorality, these men defile the flesh. Defile flesh. Um, the parallel passage in Second Peter, you can turn that if you want, it's not, not far away, in Second in Peter 2.10 there's a lot of similarities between the book of Second Peter and Jude, but in Second Peter two ten, you kind of see a, a similar phrase talking about the false teachers, um, he, about keeping the unrighteous under punishment. He is, he said in verse ten, and especially those who indulge the flesh in its corrupt desi- corrupt desires. So it's talking about this this lustful living, this sexual immorality. And he, and he uses the word defile flesh or defile the flesh. He, uses it, he leaves it kind of open. Is it, are they defiling their bodies? Well, for sure. For sure they are. And so the NIV and the HCSB are, are right in that it's defiling their flesh. But I think the problem with that translation is it limits the application because sexual immorality always defiles at least two people. The person who's pursuing it and the person who who chooses to involve with it, or the person who gets abused or gets sucked into that. Right? So, so it's, it's, it's more than just that person's sin. These men are those who pursue sexual immorality. They pursue it. But they pursue sexual immorality not like the pagans do. You know, there's, there's those who just pursue sexual immorality and there's just no facade that they're a believer or not. These are the, these are the people in the strip clubs. These are the people who openly have pornography in their home. They're just, there's just no facade at all, uh, in their lives. These false teachers are going to give a facade of, of holiness and of righteousness. They're going to hide this stuff. It's in their lives. And, and given enough time, the truth will come out because time and truth go together. But but it's it, nonetheless in their lives. And the reason that Jude can say it's going on in their lives is because these people are unconverted. They do not have the Holy Spirit within them. And so they have no ability to restrain the flesh. The lustful flesh is at war. I mean, you know how hard it is, even as a redeemed person, 
to restrain the flesh with the help of the Holy Spirit and the instruction of God's word. Right? That's a battle, is it not? So think about the, the false teachers who don't know anything of the Holy Spirit and they often reject completely the word of God. They have no ability to restrain the flesh. So this is going to come out. They may, they may uh, hide it. They will hide it and cloak it. They may restrain themselves slightly in public, but in private what's going on in their lives is they are defiling the flesh. And that's what Jude says. And it is a common, common um, characteristic of false teachers that they um, would defile the flesh. Um, and, and notice that these people are described, in a sense, already in verse 4. They, they, he, Jude tells us, he says, they're ungodly persons. This is the end of verse 4. Ungodly persons who turn the grace of our God into licentiousness. The licentiousness is a, is a term, it's just like a, a license to sin. Like God's grace is so great, we, we can just pursue sin. They, they, some would say that because God's grace covers our sin, the more we sin, the more we magnify God's grace. That's actually something Paul dealt with in Romans 6.1. Listen, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? It's not a new argument at all, but you'll still hear it today from people. Paul says this, may it never be. It's the strongest negation possible in the Greek language. May it never be. He says, how shall we who died to sin still live in it? And in a slight twist of that argument, other false teachers will emphasize that, that Christians are not under the law, any law. We're under grace. We could call this movement the hyper-grace movement. The, the Apostle Paul combated, combated this error in Romans 6 as well, verses 12 and 15, which I'll read to you. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lust and do not go on presenting your members to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not be master over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. You see, those who are, who are not in Christ are still under the law. Sin is their masters. They pursue these sins thinking it will cause them great pleasure. But those sins actually become their master. And they're horrible masters. And they will torment you and ruin your life. But understand that an unbeliever has a master and it's not the Lord. And they're, they're, not, they're not free to pursue righteousness. They're enslaved to their sin. But believers have been freed from the law. They've been freed from the slavery to sin. They're not under law, but under grace. But because they're under grace, they're not to let sin reign in their mortal body, to live as if they 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 were like they were before they became to know Christ, before they were converted. Romans six fifteen, Paul says, What then? Shall we sin because we are not under the law but under grace? 
may it never be. Again, the strongest negation in the Greek language. May it never be. Do you not know that when you go on presenting yourselves to someone as slaves for obedience, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin leading to death or of obedience leading to righteousness? But thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, you obeyed from the heart that pattern of teaching to which you were given over. And having been freed from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. So Paul makes it clear that we are to live as slaves of righteousness. Now, uh, you will hear me say, and the scriptures say, that none of us except Christ has done this perfectly. So you you can't... um, you know, say, well, I'm freed from sin, therefore I should not sin. That That's perfectionism, and that's a doctrinal error. Right? We believe in, the Bible teaches, uh, progressive sanctification. You should be growing in sanctification, growing in righteousness, turning away from sin, and turning towards Christ, and towards righteousness in a progressive sense. But But we're addressing this, because Jude says these men, these False teachers can be identified. They can be unmasked because they're going to defile the flesh. It's just going to happen. Now, I'll say that not everyone who defiles the flesh is a false teacher. But every false teacher will defile the flesh. See the difference there? Every false teacher will defile the flesh. But not everyone who defiles the flesh is a false teacher. But these false teachers are living for themselves, their pleasures. Their God is their appetite. They are living for their own lustful fantasies. What this means for you is when someone, a teacher, is exposed for defiling the flesh and sexual immorality, at that point you may not know whether they're a false teacher or simply a believer who's fallen into sin. But what you know immediately is that person is disqualified from being a spiritual leader and should not be a source of authority in my life. That's how you apply that. No matter how much you've learned from that person in the past, no matter how good of a speaker they are, no matter how popular they are, that person has disqualified themselves. right? Biblically, because they no longer meet the biblical qualifications of a teacher, pastor, and elder that are laid out for us in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1. So you say that's that's harsh? Well, tell it to God. God's trying to protect you. It could be that that person is a true believer. They're going to repent of their sins. And time will tell that, right? But at that moment, you don't know that. And so they should not be listened to, right? Don't listen to them. Uh, several weeks ago, I gave you the, the story of Jim Jones, the tragedy with that. But he's a, he's a case history in us. I mean, the man preached to his congregation that they should be celibate. All the while, he was having sexual relationships with both men and women, and then pressuring them to keep quiet because it was the will of God. You know, Let me just say, that if anyone tells you and tries to manipulate you into some sexual immorality and tells you that it's God's will, they're lying to you. Whether it's a man or a woman or whatever, they're being manipulated. Do not listen to them. Flee from them. Run away from them. Get their influence out of your life immediately. 
there's a terrible, terrible track record of pastors committing sexual immorality. I mean, there's just so many. Their actions expose them to be false teachers. Whether they are or not will remain to be seen. But they are acting like false teachers. They are acting like unbelievers. You should not listen to them. These moral failures in leadership are a test for today's undiscerning, uncontending church. And the church fails this more frequently than not. The church confuses forgiveness, which we are to grant mightily, with being above reproach and being qualified for ministry and being a one-woman man, having a good reputation with those that are outsiders. So churches who confuse these things then take a man like that and and give him a a probationary period or send him off to get counseling and get the help that he needs, whatever language they use, and within a a relatively short period of time, you find this man coming back in the ministry, either at that church or another church. He's just too talented to be benched. He needs to be teaching somewhere. And this is just a tragedy. I mean, you take someone, you take someone like Charles Stanley, a good Bible teacher, usually. But his wife divorced him. He should have stepped down from his pulpit. He was unqualified to be there, but he was too good. His church leaned into him and said, no, no, we don't want you going anywhere. And he's still preaching. He's not a false teacher, but he's acting like one. Because he's not putting himself under the word of God, under the authority of the word of God. But so many of these churches put these men back into ministry. A a more recent example is Carl Lentz, who was recently hired by Transformation Church in Tulsa, Oklahoma. And I use the word church in a very broad sense. If you, what goes on at this place is disgusting. It's just that it's disgusting. But he was recently hired by that church as one of the associate pastors, not a not a not the lead guy. And that just happened last month. But in 2020, Carl Lenz was one of the lead pastors, one of the founding pastors of Hillsong, New York City. Very influential with Hollywood stars and singers. But he was fired by the church in 2020, not that long ago, for moral failures. That's what they said. That's code language for sexual immorality. And later on, he admitted to cheating on his wife. So here he is, just a few years later, being hired back. I'm not saying a pastor can't be restored But to be above reproach, to have a good reputation with outsiders, to prove yourself as a one-woman man, that's probably going to take a decade of faithfulness if he ever comes back. It it depends on the circumstances, so I don't want to set arbitrary rules, but I'm just saying that that can't be measured in two years because false teachers can can get their lives together for a little while and look like Christians. That that church is setting itself up for trouble with this man. 
So don't don't be fooled by by men and sometimes women with who have tearful um, confessions and saying that they are repentant. If they ask for forgiveness, of course, forgive them. We're commanded to do that. That's a separate issue than being biblically qualified. If they're not biblically qualified, don't give them collateral in your lives. There are other biblically qualified men who you can listen to. Stop listening to them. Listen to those. Stop reading their books. Read other books. Now, I want to take this opportunity just to just to just bring this a little bit closer to home. There's no false teachers here that I know of, or I would have already talked to you. But God calls us to be holy because He's holy. And my desire is that you would press this home in your own life this morning. Think about your own life. Are you defiling the flesh? Are you who profess the name of Christ living in sin? Committing adultery? Committing fornication? Engaged in homosexuality? These These aren't temptations just for the world. The lust of your flesh will tempt you to to pursue these things. And because Jesus says that if you look upon a woman with lust, you've committed adultery with her in your heart, we know that it doesn't just take physical adultery, actual adultery, to do that. A man or a woman can look at another man or a woman with lust in a way that defiles their body, that it's a sin against God. And you know, this sin with pornography, it's rampant in the church. If statistics are correct, then I know that people in this room who love Christ, who love the Word of God and want to live your life to glorify Him, that you're engaged in it, if the statistics are right. So examine your hearts. Have be done with that for the glory of God. It's, it's a battle. But it's a battle worth fighting because when you live this way, you are living like an apostate. I'm not saying you are apostate. I'm saying you're living like an apostate. You're living like an unbeliever. And you can't glorify God with your life on the outside if what you do in your private life defiles you. So understand, Christ forgives. So my call is to anyone here this morning, and there likely are some, if you are engaged in this, confess your sins to the high priest, to Jesus. Come to him, confess him, plead with him to forgive you. And the scripture says he is faithful and just to forgive you all your sin, and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. Our Lord does that work for us. You need to confess the fact you didn't guard your heart. You didn't guard your life. And emphasize the grace of God. Because climbing out of an enslavement to pornography, something you can't do. It's, it's a bogmire. You know, it's like quicksand. You think you got a grasp, but then you fall back in. This is not a pick yourself up from the bootstraps type of message. 
or thing. You, you just can't do this. The Lord has to rescue you. But understand what God's grace does. God's grace doesn't give you a license to continue in this sin. God's grace gives you the ability to pursue righteousness. Listen to Titus 2, verses 11 to 14. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men. All, no matter what you've done. Whether you committed physical adultery or just adultery of the heart, looking at someone with lust. Our Lord provides salvation to all who call upon his name. So the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us. So the grace of God instructs us in this way, that denying ungodliness and worldly desires, we should live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from all lawlessness. Lawlessness is another word from sin. He he gave himself to redeem us from all lawlessness and purify, that's cleanse, purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good works. If God's redeemed you, he's begun this process in your life. And we live in such a sexualized environment. And it's getting worse. You've got to put guards up. Whether you're an old man or old lady, or whether you're a young man or a young lady, you must guard your life. Guard your doctrine. So understand that our Lord takes righteousness seriously. You need His help. Call upon Him. He will answer. Don't live like an apostate or or an unbeliever, a false believer. Ask the Lord to purify you, to search you and know you. He knows you. But invite him to cleanse you. And these type of sins often require help. Find someone who is more mature, who is godly, who has has some measure of of uh, success in trusting the Lord to overcome this sin. Seek them out, right? So men with men, women with women, right? So that's what the Lord would have you to do. You can come and and ask me for help as well, or ask my wife for for help. Seek out someone who is mature. Right? You don't need someone who's still stuck in this sin, is still struggling with this. You need someone who is on the other side of it who can help you. And they're on the other side of it, not because of anything they have done, but because of what Christ has done. So again, Jude calls us to contend for the faith. Those who rely upon dreams, who pursue sexual immorality, reject authority, blasphemy glorious ones, we'll look at those in the future. These people you should not listen to. You must not listen to. Now, I want to return to the story of Alex Malarkey for just a moment. One of the reporters who documented his his uh, confession and all the the kind of like the uh, controversy that that then erupted, um, you know, even after Alex confessed that these things were not true, uh, the publisher kept selling the book. Uh, Lifeway, who was had at that time had physical stores. They, they had all these his books on their shelves and were selling many of them and were profiting from many of them, even though these things were coming out. 
It wasn't until later that those books were pulled off the shelves. But one of the reporters who documented all this ended her article in, an, I thought, a very interesting way. It, it was rather strange, uh, kind of a strange lament. But her conclusions are insightful to the environment that we live in today because they demonstrate such a lack of discernment in today's Christianity. I just want to re just read the ending of that, her article. She ends this way after she kind of exposes the what the controversy. Uh, not only not only that Alex denied it, but his father contends that everything's happened just the way that Alex said that it did to this day. Alex's story, the one he says never happened, gave thousands of people hope. It, it promised that God is real and that we will see our, lo our lost ones again and that later we will live forever in peace somehow. His disavowal of that account may have squashed the market for those particular kinds of stories, but it's hardly surprising that there are still plenty of successful books with a distinct echo of the same genre. There was a 2017 memoir, The Impossible, which tells the story of a mother's desperate prayer for her son's resurrection after an accident. The movie version of this miraculous true story, quote-unquote, took in more than $40 million this spring. That was in 2015. Jesus Calling, I'm still quoting her. Jesus Calling, a 15-year-old devotional, now 18 years old, written in the voice of Jesus by a woman who said she received personal messages from God, is one of the most successful Christian books of the millennium and remains a bestseller. Listen to what she says. There will always be an appetite for stories that are that are not just too good to check, but literally impossible to verify. The whole point of faith, and this is where she gets a little strange, the whole point of faith, after all, is that it requires believing in what one cannot entirely see, but what others may have been blessed enough on occasions to witness, unquote. So she's just defining Christians are just to have faith. Someone makes a wild, outlandish claim Oh, let it give you hope of heaven, hope of seeing your loved ones. And you're just to have faith. Faith in what? The person's word? That's not faith. Now, faith is believing the things that are unseen, but, but that's pointing us to the word of God. We don't see yet the promises of God. Okay? So we're to have faith that, that God will keep his word and those things will come. But you are not called to take everybody's claim of something supernatural as legitimate. In fact, you must not, if you're going to be obedient to Scripture, you must contend for the faith. Take these things back to the Word of God. Be contenders for the glory of Christ and for the love of Christ. Right? The, this is connected back to our love for Christ. We love Him. And so we contend for his word, right? And we guard and protect our own lives and the lives of those around us. Contend for the faith. Let's pray. Our Lord God, we would be so lost without you. Not only lost in our sin and condemned to an eternity of punishment, rightfully so, 
but we would be so lost if we were given your word. But you've given us your word to guide us and to lead us in paths of righteousness for your name's sake. Your word is the, the light to our feet and the lamp to our path. Lord, just work in our lives to help us to, to cling to your word, to be, to be contending for the faith in a way that brings you glory. Where we're loving one another, caring for one another, ministering to one another, protecting one another. Lord, just do your work in us. And I just pray that you would conform us more to the image of Christ, our Lord, and holiness and righteousness and our walk with you. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to the pulpit ministry of Medina Bible Church in Medina, Ohio. You can find church information, a complete sermon library, and other helpful materials at medinabible.org. This message is copyrighted by Medina Bible Church. All rights reserved.